So we're being recorded now. We are. No secret recording now. <laughs> All your secrets, I can't That's right. secretly record them that everyone knows. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Today I have Justin back with me. Hi, Justin. Would you like to introduce hi. yourself and hi, tell Donna, us a little yeah. bit about yourself? Yeah, we'll do. <clears throat> um, thank you very much for having me back again. Um, this is our second conversation about my books. Um, about life, living, and things like that in general. Um, I'm uh, an author of now four four books. Um, they are mostly historical fiction. Um, I found this this interesting way of describing what I write because the the genre is actually secret history thrillers. Okay, and people say to me, "What's a secret history thriller?" So I say to them, "Okay." If the historian um, ha has a set of facts that they have worked with and have written about and what, probably what people know about in the history books, if those set of facts is the motorway to get from A to B to C to D to E, and they are the set of facts, my story starts at A but takes the B road to get to E. Okay, so I take the same starting point and some of, you know, and I stay in the same territory as the historian, but I'm taking a completely different route to get to the destination. So the, the, the territory is familiar, like in this book, we're going to talk about a setting in China. You know, it's got Chinese things and Chinese demons and Chinese dragons and Chinese footwear and Chinese customs. But the story I'm telling about a war of succession and um, the coming of age of China and of the young man in the story, um, it's not what you find in the history books. Um, but some of the facts you will. So hence, I'm taking the B road. Um, so I, I think that's a uh, by way of introduction to me and my books. So there you are. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, probably not, actually. Uh, I did. I've always been a voracious reader um, of fiction. Um, and uh, I went, when I was in uni in my 20s, I did write a novel. In, in longhand, because that's how you sort of did things in those days. I've still got it somewhere. Um, uh, about uh, ancient Greek gods, I think it was about, because I was into Greece at the time, ancient Greece. Um, and, but I never published it, uh, but I did publish a short story in the local student rag um, and didn't really write any more fiction after that. Um, but what I did do was a lot of research on my own um, about history, um, particularly about Egypt, um, China, and Prussia, Germany, which actually were the territories I explored in my first three novels. Um, so uh, in answer to your question, I came back to writing about writing fiction about 10, 12 years ago. Um, 
and decided that I would try and combine those two things. They do say, as you know, write about what you know about, which is kind of problematic in a way, because, um, I mean, do we really know about anything when it comes down to it? I was reflecting today that are we not just, you know, if, if all our opinions are formed from the newspapers and the media and other people, doesn't that make us just clones? Do you know what I mean? We're just, we actually, uh, and, and I suppose what I'm trying to point to is one of the things I found most difficult in life is to think for yourself. It's really to come to conclusions using your own experience um, because it's so easy to pick up other people's opinions um, Clint Eastwood had this famous saying opinions are like arseholes everybody's got one yeah. <laughs> undeniable <laughs> typical Clint Eastwood he must have been in one of his magnum days um, so yeah I, you know, just reflecting on what we do know about. I thought I knew a little bit about those historical periods. So I went back into them. And like I said to you before we began, I've, one of the things I, I've certainly discovered in, in writing is that you have to write about stuff, not only that you know about, but stuff you are passionate about and stuff that you love. Because if you're not passionate and, and, and loving the story, you know, what are people going to read when they're reading your story? Are they going to read your board with the story? Um, and alongside that, another reason why you need the passion is sure as God made little apples, you will come across a time when you're stuck. When, you you know, you run out of ideas, you don't know where to go, your characters have deserted you. <laughs> Uh, so you need the passion to get through the difficult bits. Passion's fine to get you through the stuff when you're writing. You know, it's like the difficult bits. I think they're the bits actually in our own lives that determine people. It, it's easy to ride the crest of the wave of success. It's how you get through the difficult bits. So it's the same for a writer. Um, so you need the passion. So I had, you know, some material I was working with uh, like I said, on ancient Egypt, um, old China, and uh, Germany, Prussia, um, and, and took those territories, took those B roads <laughs> to tell a completely different story about those those uh, those, those um, um, countries and customs and so on. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> No, I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up on there. I'm a bit, and obviously in a bit of a, a amusing mood today. <laughs> um, well, actually, all I was thinking is um, you're talking about uh, trying to form your own opinions, and I suppose it's you have to be the person that doesn't take everything on face value and actually goes and checks, you know, to be able to to have your own view on things. You know, instead of just accepting what the media tell you, I suppose is the only, you know, not everyone does that, do they? <laughs> they just accept what they're told, whereas some people actually go away and find out 
the truth or somewhere between. Yeah, well, I think the best you can do uh, is to try. Because, uh, you know, that, that's the best you can do is to try to find out what, what things are, why things are as they are, you know. So yeah, so that these these books, I suppose, are a result, a residue of the passage of time of me trying to find out why why we're in the society and civilization and times that we are. And what made you take the decision to actually go for it, to sit down, to write the book, and then to get it published? Mm. yeah I suppose you know yeah about 10 12 years ago I sort of sat down and thought well what am I going to do in my later years I'm going to have a bit more time to spend on something or other and and, and like I was alluding to earlier I guess I looked at the things that have always been of interest and of of a passion to me and history and literature, and to some degree, you know, uh, world literature, uh, as well as some philosophy and, you know, natural history even, um, customs of the world, um, all sorts of different subjects, really. I suppose I'm a bit of a bit of a, an eclectic fellow. Um, and um, thought, well, I'd try my hand at um, writing fiction using those historical areas that I had studied before and see where I go. So that, that's what set me off. I'm not sure there are alternatives uh, at the time, uh, but I still <laughs> seem to be on the same track and um, trying to develop the skills and the arts um, of a writer. Um, so do you want to, do you have a copy of your new book to show everyone? Um, this one? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's the cover behind me. Um, it's actually not a new, it's my second novel. Uh, okay. Uh, just it's, it's not new. So it published a couple of years ago, but I've just decided to um, re, uh, re-promote it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's called The Old Dragon's Head. And I don't know if you can see the picture behind on the wall. Um, it it's, uh, features a, uh, a Chinese dragon holding in one paw uh, the Pearl of Wisdom. Probably can't see that too well. And behind it is uh, the Great Wall of China which is where the novel is set. Um, and, and in the, the lower part here, um, here is uh, the sea. That's the, the Great Wall meets the Yellow Sea at a place called Shanghai Wan. Um, and it uh, features, that's where the story is set because the Chinese believed that the, the Great Wall, you can imagine it kind of goes up the hill and down the dale and up the hill and down the dale. So it's got this sinuous nature 
was occupied by a serpentine creature, a numinous dragon. And of course the old dragon's head, uh, which in Chinese is the Lao Long Tao, is where the Great Wall or the old dragon meets the sea. Because that's where it's having a drink. <laughs> See. So I, I, I got caught by that, just, just reading about that. I thought, well, there's got to be a story in this. And of course, un uncovered all sorts of, of gems about that particular place. Um, what had happened uh, was the Great Wall, as, as, as some, of your, some of the listeners may know, was not built in one go. Obviously, it's a huge structure, thousands of miles long. And on the northeast end of China, which is about 100 kilometers east of Beijing, um, the Yanshan Mountains come to a halt about 10 kilometers uh, short of the sea. And there's this passage of 10 kilometers wide, um, a kind of coastal passage uh, with things like salt marshes and so on. Uh, where the wall had not been completed. The wall had so far just come up to uh, the, 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 where the mountains met this, this small coastal passage. So there's a 10 kilometer stretch, which was uh, obviously of, of key military significance uh, because uh, the, the Mongols had invaded in the 1200s. Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan, his son, grandson, but they'd been defeated. So the, 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 the emperor, the Chinese emperor, the first Chinese emperor of the Ming dynasty was looking for ways to shore up the defenses of the country. So he commissioned the building of the extension of the wall from the mountains to the sea. And this is a 10 kilometer stretch which ended at Shanghai Wang, uh, at, at, at the sea. So I read into the history of the building of this fortress, because um, it wasn't just a wall, they were obviously, because it was of strategic significance, uh, the emperor made sure that uh, there was suitable accommodation for you know, horses, archers, thousands of men because they feared obviously that um, the Mongols would invade down that passage. <laughs> the irony was, oh god there are so many ironies in history aren't they, so with all these thousands of men um, and this was completed in about 1380 okay, the irony was that in 1644 which is well after my novel had finished by the way, this is just historical fact because, of course, the Chinese believed in karma. And one of the reasons that I, I kind of go into in the story is that because they, the Chinese had allowed the invasion of the Mongols in the 1200s, they believed they must have been living wrong. They kind of departed from the way of heaven. And so part of the, the background to the story I'm exploring is how the Chinese were trying to find their own new identity, which more coincided with and was in harmony with 
you know the gods and the demons and and and, and the heavenly influences because they believe heavily in in these things um so all this to give some background to so that in 1644 one soldier who was stationed at this um and this is this true story apparently uh, stationed in Shanghai Wan at this fortress, he was disappointed in the way the emperor was conducting himself and, and governing the country. And he thought that um, not only was he disappointed, he was appalled um, to the point that um, he, he couldn't support what the emperor was doing anymore because he was making such a mess of things. So he opened the gates to let in the Mongols. They just walked in. I mean, there may have been some bribery, I don't know. I didn't look into the story, but I just loved the irony of it. So there's a little bit about the setting of the story. And it is a great setting. And, uh, and it's 1400, isn't it? It starts. Yeah. So 1400s China by the Great Wall is just such an atmospheric setting for a book anyway. Yeah, I thought so too. I, I really got into the setting and, um, you know, I was surprised to find that they, they even had novels um, written at that time um, or, or soon after, during the Ming Dynasty. Um, so I, I really I wanted to get into... Because, of course, the trouble is if you read even Chinese historians today and translations of that, you're only looking at history through the mindset and the morality of someone in the 21st century. But what you want to try and do is to appreciate how they thought in the 14th or 13th or 15th century. So it's kind of, you know, if you can go to the source material, it's much better if you see what I'm trying to say. So that's why I looked at and read some of the novels of the time and some of the short stories. I found, um, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, yeah, it's on the shelf there. Um, a collection of short stories set in the Ming Dynasty written during that time. Very strange stories about the kinds of things they believed and. Um, you know, just one, one sticks in my mind that it was a story about two brothers or two friends who'd made a pact for some reason to meet in a certain place at a certain time. And one of them, for some reason, was uh, unavoidably delayed and physically couldn't make the appointment, right? So, so what he did was he killed himself, committed suicide, and sent his ghost to the meeting so that his, at least his ghost could be there. I mean, what? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it, you know, a fictional author could, couldn't come up with stuff like that. And I'm thinking, what, what, what kind of mindset thinks like that? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> don't even know what to say to that. No, exactly. You don't, do you? <laughs> you just say, well, you move on to something else. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, he was doing it, I understand, for the honour 
of not of keeping the appointment even to the point of his own death do you know what i mean i mean whew. there's powerful stuff in a way but you know to our to our mind today we we, we wouldn't go to those extremes we'd send an email or a text yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you're lucky yeah definitely wouldn't commit yeah. suicide and no. yeah <laughs> then do, and, you know, and then and how do you send your ghost there? I mean, excuse me. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd be like, yeah, I'll see you later. I'm, I'm yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, I'm off now. And then how would the ghost, you know, how would the ghost yeah. communicate with the guy when he got there? Was he communicating with the, with his ghost? Maybe, you know, do you see what I mean? There's a wonderful story there for somebody. And that's just <laughs> one of them. You know, and it's so strange to our, to our mind. And one of the things I loved about doing the research as I realized how Eurocentric our, our view of history and view of ourselves and our even our capability um, is. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I suppose what I'm pointing to is the huge value of comparison, of being able to compare different time periods, different cultures, different civilizations, because you see, see them in a different light. You really do. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there a lot of research that you've done that you just couldn't include, but you'd love to have put in? For sure, for sure. Um, you know, you get you get caught up with uh, the time period, the way they thought about these things. Um, you know, um, I mean, I, m I remember one bit of research was that, of course, to build the wall took a huge amount of physical effort. In other words, there was a lot of people working on it. The Chinese had this uh, notion that it was kind of the morals of the time. So that if you died, and a lot of people died building the wall, um, you had to be buried where you near to where you were born or in the village in which you were born. So there was a lot of toing and froing with dead bodies um, back to where they were born when they died. You know. Um, you know, things like that, um, you know, rites of passage, um, these kinds of things, the drinking houses, uh, how they were organised, because <laughs> I think there's one scene in, in, in a pub, basically. Uh, of course, they called them an inn or something. Um, you know, and they went around on these, um, you know, on, you know, with yokes over there, carrying things by yokes, you know, and, and thing and carrying things on their heads, um, uh, and people being carried around. You know, with those stilts, with this, this sort of, sort of, with a seat on top of stilts, and the the, the sort of mandarins will get carried around like that. Um, and and I, you know, I try to get into the sort of smells of the place. What would it smell like? I mean, most it probably smelled like shit, to be honest, um, because you know, as you probably know. Most cultures, other than perhaps the rich Romans, did not have exactly 
the most beneficial um, system for getting rid of their, their crap, you know, so it was mostly just in the street. Um, lots of horses as well. <laughs> sorry? And lots of horses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Horses, mules, um, you know, so it probably just stank the place out. And mm. then people's hygiene habits weren't exactly the same as ours. Um, so anyway, there you go. Yeah, so all sorts of, of, of research comes up, doesn't it? And you pick up all these odd facts and, you know, you can't include them all. Um, if you were able to take one of your characters out for a meal, who would you choose and what would you ask them? What, from the book, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, I suppose um, I don't know if you've read much medieval stuff but one of the problems you have with a story like particularly set in a place like China uh, is how to introduce a female character who's not just a housewife because, of course, if they're a housewife, they're not really going to take part in the story that much. So uh, this is an answer to your question, by the way. Um, so I would probably ask to talk to Luli, who is the, the seer, uh, the sort of clairvoyant um, in the story. Um, and that's how I managed to introduce a female character um, into the story, because... Um, the Chinese had this notion of, of a clairvoyant. They call them someone with, who had yin-yang eyes, which is a lovely expression. Um, yeah, I love that. That, yeah. that was one of my favourite things, actually. I yeah, thought that was really I cool. Made it up. You know, most of that stuff's not made up, you know. <laughs> you know, like I was saying about the, the, the story of the two brothers meeting in the same place. I mean, half the stuff you just don't need to make up. It's all there, really. Um, so yeah, she she was an interesting character to write, um, and um, you know I'd ask her uh, what she could see with her yin yang eyes, you know, because um, I guess that there were people, and maybe still are, who have these kinds of abilities. Um, you can see things from afar into the future or into the past or, or whatever you know I, I like this sort of I like the supernatural in my stories but the way I characterize it is more through visions dreams ESP you know more things just on the edge of our own experience just beyond the reach if you like so because I think in that way it makes the story more believable yeah um, it sounds like there's loads more that you could tell about China and the building as a wall. So would you consider going back and writing a follow-on? Well, yeah, other people have asked me that because it does it does sort of leave, the story leaves, um, the ending has, does leave a few threads open. Um, and it wasn't, I didn't have in mind um, writing a, a sequel when I left it like that. Um, but it does, uh, it, it has got enough threads to, um, uh, to, to provide a follow-on. Um, 
but that wasn't my intention at the time. At the moment, um, I'm kind of full on with um, a story uh, that I mentioned to you before we came on air, uh, which is kind of <laughs> leading me down a, uh, an alley which I hadn't intended to go down. <laughs> but I'm trying to, I'm enjoying the view, so I'm carrying on being led by my muse, so to speak. So at the moment, I'm full on into that story, perhaps more of that later. Um, do you hide any secret jokes or messages in your books? I suppose it's harder when it's historical, but I imagine you could still sneak in some little things. I always do. <laughs> There's always... I mean, you read, um, did you read The Abdication uh, the last yeah. time? Yeah. I mean, uh, I put in a little clue right at the beginning. Uh, and this is the kind of stuff I do, but I don't make it that transparent. That the character in that story, which, um, which Donna's kindly read and reviewed, it's called The Abdication. The character is called Tula, and she has a swollen ankle. Right. And later on in the story, it, it, I mustn't give away too many spoilers, but basically, if I tell you that um, a swollen ankle in Greek is Oedipus, and if you think of some of the other elements in that story, I included other elements from Oedipus' story into her character. Not all of them, obviously, because she's the wrong gender. But that doesn't matter. So that's the kind of secret message I write. Uh, you know, I base stuff in and see if anybody picks it up. Often they don't, actually. I'm always disappointed, but there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I suppose you've got to be fairly widely read and um, be pretty switched on in a way. But I, I like doing those kinds of things, yeah. Uh, I, I do it all the time. Um, sort of allude to things. Because um, I think, I suppose it's, you know, I suppose ooh, as a writer, you're, you're, you're trying to give a narrative story which occupies the conscious mind, I suppose. But in between the lines and in between the words and in the sentences, there's, there's a sort of a feeling, there's a mood there's a sense of what's going on, and that's more in the semi-conscious. So they're the things that you can allude to, um, you know, pictures that you can provoke through the writing, um, and images, visions that you can try and plant in the reader's mind uh, through the semi-conscious. So, um, you know, music does that all the time to us. That's how we appreciate music so much, because it goes straight in the semi-conscious, um, even though we're hearing it, obviously. Um, so I suppose what I'm trying to say is, is the very, very good writers, um, of which I don't include myself, by the way, um, maybe one day, they're the ones who, almost like they're the musicians, um, uh, who go straight in the semi-conscious and tell their story there. 
don't know if that makes sense. Um, out of all the books you've written so far, what's been the most fun scene that you've written and what's been the most difficult? The fun scene? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just to keep you on your toes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I think... Um, if I if I stick to this book, because there's there's like four books to choose from. So um one I was picking up earlier. Um uh there's a chapter here in chapter 33. Um and it's you know at the beginning of each chapter in this book, I've got these little Chinese sayings um which are meant to evoke uh the flavor and feeling of chinese thought and thinking and philosophy and so on some of them are poetic some of them are like things from confucius uh from the analects from you know ancient chinese law spelt l-o-r-e um, and this one in chapter 33 which i think i did enjoy writing exploring um says may you live in interesting times and underneath it, I've got ancient Chinese curse. And in it, I explain why I think it's a curse. Because most people think that to live in interesting times is a blessing. And I'm not going to tell you why I think it's a curse. You have to read the novel. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure it really answers your question. It wasn't a particularly difficult scene to write. Um, I suppose, in general, the scenes I find the most difficult to write are the endings, because you're, you're trying to tie up all the loose ends or the main loose ends uh, of your plot threads and of your, you know, you're trying to resolve your character arcs. Um, and you're trying to do it in a way which rewards the reader for sticking with you for so long. Um, so to that sense, you know, every word kind of counts that much more than it does say in chapter five or chapter 10. Um, so in general, they are perhaps the last chapter or the penultimate chapters, they're, they're the most difficult ones to write. You, you probably know that from, from reading so many books. Although a lot, a lot of books I find, um, I find a lot of authors get lost in the middle of a book. Um, and, and you kind of, you know, I find myself picking up books these days and not getting past halfway because I feel the, the author's kind of not following the organic progression of, of the story. Um, they're perhaps following maybe what I've done as well in the past, following the way they'd intended to go with the story but because the story's gone in a different way, they, they've refused to take that route, the natural organic route. And they said, no, I'm going to go it this way and stick to that. Um, do you, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I know I'm not going to name any authors. I can't think of any books, but I'm just talking generically. Yeah. I know it's quite a common thing to get stuck about 30,000 words as well. And so, yeah, I imagine that that would be where it would sort of go off. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, reading so many. Luckily, uh, I don't notice that too often. But yeah, I do notice. It. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, yeah. I 
name either. Mm. Yeah. So what um, would you what would you say are the most difficult bits that authors um, have trouble with? Is there any particular area? Um, can't think of anything actually they i mean beginning middle or end for example. middle always absolutely the middle, yeah, yeah yeah always I, I call it the sag in the middle you know where the sort of yeah. it takes off and then suddenly goes droop yeah you know and, and as a right as a writer i'm really aware of because i'm i'm thinking am i still going up or am i going Ugh. no yeah very that's, few that's, people that's why you, you've got to have the passion you know because if, if you're yeah. not you know, interested in what your damn character's doing, how the hell is the reader going to be? <clears throat> yeah, that's it, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's always... I think a couple of people um, have trouble ending, but only yeah. because they're attached to their characters. But, yeah, okay. it's always the middle. Always, always. Yeah, yeah interesting. And, and another one, I suppose, is perhaps less obvious but just as crucial is what I would call transitions where you're moving from one scene to another. Um, and sometimes that can be clunky if you're not careful, but other times it can be overwritten. So it's getting the balances right there is just as important because you want to take the reader with you, but you want to take them with you in a way that they're happy with what's going on. You, you know, you are leading them by the hand, um, but you don't want to sort of yank them across <laughs> across the threshold <laughs> or go over the threshold so slowly that they're bored by the time they get into the house, you're, you know, the house of the next chapter, so to speak. So transitions can be quite, quite um, problematic as well. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're editing, what is what are your most overused words or phrases? Uh, so, <laughs> I think I use so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I suppose, um, let me see. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do have a lot of filler phrases, um, you know, after that. Um, sooner or later, following on, you know, and th these are stuff that, as as a young author, you think are okay, but actually, I mean, you, I'm I'm surprised that, you know, I, I reckon you can lose ten percent, you can cut ten percent of verbiage from a book of a hundred thousand words, no trouble, just by cutting out those you know, link phrases, which you don't actually need. You know, I've, I've got an ongoing debate, for example, as to whether you should say she nodded or she nodded her head. Because you can't nod anything else, can you? No. So really all you need is she nodded. <laughs> and yet yeah. most people will put she nodded her head. So you can get rid of 50% of the words there. But you got to, you know, you still got to go and find them, and you know. But I, I had a, quite a, a fraught engagement with editing. I, I didn't like editing at all to begin with um, when I first started writing. 
But then I realized that I didn't like it because I wasn't any good at it. So I decided to get better at it. I'm not, you know, I'm not proficient or expert at all, but I've got to the point where I know a bit about what I'm doing and therefore can at least see the results and enjoy the, um, you know, enjoy the finished product a little bit more, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I um, I can see now the benefits, especially if you just write a first draft, that you just write what, what comes out and then actually when you edit, that's when you're actually bringing it, you know, to where it makes sense. So I can see now the benefits of editing and I don't think people that read a book will realise quite how many times that would have been changed before it gets. Yeah. So, yeah, I understand actually now the importance but it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I, because that, that is one of the arts and skills you have to learn, I guess. You know, writing is one, but editing is, is just as important. Um, but even then, you know, I, I will use other, I will use beta readers and editors um, I mean, one of the, th the interesting things I find about first draft is on reading it, I now look for plot threads that I hadn't intended to put in there, but which are there. And I'm thinking, hey, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, um, one of the lessons I learned from a professional editor early on in my career was some scenes need to be written out. Um, I think in a, in a draft that I sent this editor, he, he, I kind of alluded to some particular scene and he said, you need to write that scene out. So I expanded it into a chapter. Um, and, um, and it was a really good scene. Um, you know, uh, I think it was about, um, this, this was in the genes of Isis, the Egypt story, the first novel. Um, and yeah, and I, won't, I won't go into what the scene was, but I, I also now look for dramatic scenes that need to be written out, to be written down, rather than just alluded to in passing. Because they're, they're, they're the stuff of what your writing is about, the dramatic scenes. Um, so it's kind of, you've got to have a, a second, a second, a sixth sense almost to pick out what those scenes are, um, lest they, you know, pass you by. Do you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose you have to take emotion out of it as well, and and look at it from a reader's point of view instead of from, you know, that's what you wrote and you want to keep it <laughs> because it's, you know, part of you. You have to mm. take your emotion away from it and like, no, if it doesn't work, it's got to go. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> killing, they call it killing your babies, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I want to kill your babies. <laughs> so. um, since we last spoke, have you made more author friends and more contacts in the writing community? Probably made less, actually. <laughs> Um, because I guess of COVID, I used to be members of member of a writing group in Bristol, but they, I think they've been meeting online. But 
Um, I think writing groups are really good for when you're starting and need support, but I kind of got to the point now where I'm kind of more self-sufficient, I suppose. Um, I have one or two writing friends um, who I'm in touch with. Um, but I'm not sure I'm necessarily made any new ones. Perhaps online, you know, still a member of a few Facebook writing groups. Uh, there's a historical fiction writing group, uh, which has a really quite a broad membership, which is always good. Um, so probably no, but mostly due to circumstance, yeah. Are you looking at doing any um, signing events or any um, events next year? I've been doing events all, all year, actually. Um, um, uh, I found a good niche with working with WH Smith um, and I've, they, they kind of allow uh, local-ish authors <laughs> uh, to come and do book signings in their shops um, and I think uh, over, the, over, the, over this year I've done about 25 25 i've been doing it every week for for, for months basically um they they take they take a percentage of the cut um but you know it gets my name out and because i'm not well known um you know people say to me oh i've never heard of you <laughs> and i said if you'd have heard of me i wouldn't be here i'm only here because you've not heard of me think about it um so last week I was in, well, last Friday and Saturday I was in Cardiff. Next Sat Friday and Saturday I'm in Bath uh, at WH Smith's. And the weekend after that uh, I'm in Yeovil, the weekend before Christmas. Um, I should probably have a couple of months off in January and February because they're really quiet times. Um, but also that will allow me to bash on with my novel. Um, and then probably take up a, a signings again in, you know, towards Easter. Um, so I've made a lot of contacts with the managers because mostly it's up to the local managers to decide. Um, and they, they, they take the books on a sale or return basis. Um, and it allows obviously a bit of publicity as well around the event. So yeah, I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity and to continue to have it. In fact, the other day, I think I sold what were the books I've sold through my publisher. So I sold my thousandth book, um, which I was well pleased about um, in the last, what, uh, since 2018, so three years, three, four years. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, e-books e don't seem to do so well. That's mostly, that's all paperbacks. The e-books, I like to keep them available, but um, they don't sell as well. Again, because people will only buy them. I think if they've met me and they don't want to buy the, the paperback, um, but at least there's that option. So yeah, yeah. And um, what's been your standout moment so far since you started writing? <laughs> So what do you mean by standout? 
your favorite moment news or I've made it or this is cool or this is what I've always wanted. <laughs> I've made I've made it. You've written three books, so that makes you an author, no matter how many it does. Uh, and I won't uh, have it said otherwise. No, four books actually. Four but books, there you yeah, go. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I wasn't um belittling it, but um I don't know. Probably the the first, the you know, holding the first book um was probably the standout moment. It's a really nice moment. You know, I think I'd worked six years on that book. Um, started with 180,000 words and ended with 105,000. That's what I mean about learning the art of editing. <laughs> I I didn't just take, take take a clipper. I took a flamethrower, you know, to... <laughs> to <laughs> uh, uh, but holding, that, holding the book with a cover, and it's just such a huge amount of work goes into a book. Um, but, of course, the more you do it, the more cognizant, aware and hopefully skilled you get at um, telling a story, um, entertaining, um, you know, and speculating about life and living. Yeah. So I'd say that would be the moment. And what do you like to do when you're not writing? Uh, I like to watch sport, uh, live sport on TV. I, 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 I watch football, um, not that much, because um, there is such a lot of live sport. I could watch it all day. If, um, you know, I watch a bit of cricket. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, this morning I went to a yoga class, uh, which I've taken up again. Uh, I, I started that in my 20s years ago. And, um, it's it's really good for you, um, so I, I enjoy that. Um, and running um, a sort of a bookshop from my from my office, I suppose, because <laughs> you know doing twenty five book signings in different W H Smith stores takes a huge effort um, of ordering books, delivering them doing the signing, sending the invoice, doing doing the bookkeeping of it. Um, so that's not necessarily what I enjoy doing, but it's part of, um, you know, the opportunity of doing those signings. And, and you know, if other authors are listening, if they want to contact me, um, please do. I'm, I'm happy to share uh, the experiences. Um, and how to approach these guys because there are, there are opportunities there, but you kind of got to you got to be able to front it, and you, you really do have to believe in your work um, because, of course, you know it's all very well you, you can hold your book up, but when you're talking to a stranger and they say, "Well, what's your book about then?" You know, and there there you are. <laughs> um, you have to try and interest them should i say not convince but interest them um but hey unless you put yourself in that position you don't know what you're going to say so it's all it's all good stuff it's all good personal development isn't it? i mean oh yeah absolutely uh, I mean, there, there you are i don't suppose before you started this that you you would be 
talking to all these strange men and women from your living room, you know, and yet there you are, you're a confident interviewer, you know, you, you come across, you know, you know about writing, you know about books, you know about people, you know, and you're learning all this stuff as you go. Um, so everything has its kind of side benefits, doesn't it? You know, um, so. Yeah, I used to, be, um, used to be quite shy and stuff as well. So I never thought I'd be doing this. Ever. Yeah, exactly, there you go. So you've overcome, you know, I think most people are, Donna. Most people are. Um, uh, but, to, you know, you look at um, young children uh, and a lot of them are shy, you know, hiding behind their mother's skirt, so to speak. So you could actually argue that it's quite a natural state not an unnatural one and yet the world we live in sort of suggests that it's unnatural um but i actually think it's quite natural to be shy um but you know if you see where i'm trying to come from um you still got to get up and sing a song haven't you yeah <laughs> yeah definitely i'm not going to start singing <laughs> <laughs> no no me no, everybody would turn off if we started. Yeah, there's, there's no need to for that. <laughs> there's no need. Maybe Trixie can come on. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, she probably would, actually. Does, does she do a bit of singing? Uh, she, well, she, she doesn't make too much noise. She barks a lot um, in oh, the garden. Okay. But, um, yeah, she hasn't, we've not heard her yell or anything yet, so. Okay, yeah, maybe that'll come. Uh, <laughs> yeah, bless her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just for your listeners, um, if they don't know, Trixie is Donna's dog. Yeah, she usually makes a cameo appearance, but oh, okay. she hasn't today. She's no, she hasn't somewhere. Today. Yeah. yeah. But you did see her when we first started talking. So we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little cutie. Um. So you are currently working on your latest book. Where's this one set? <laughs> Well, I've just I've just circumnavigated the globe. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> in in fifteen seventy, uh, with a fellow named Francis Drake. Uh, I've just got back to England, uh, and my character is uh, he, he's found himself mixed up with a fellow named Francis Walshingham, uh, who was Elizabeth the first spymaster, um, and because he's He's got certain certain gifts, shall we say? Um, they want they they're quite keen for him to work for them, but he's gone off looking for somebody else, and he's got mixed up with some people called um, I don't know what I'd call them, Children of Egypt. Would you know what I'm talking about if I mentioned Children of Egypt? Well, apparently in the 1500s, early 1500s, gypsies arrived in this country from Egypt. They reckon originally they might have been from India, but they first arrived um, uh, in 1500 from via Egypt, and they used to be called Egyptians. But the name got shortened to gypsies. Okay. So he's got involved, the characters got involved with gypsies. And of course, they have quite a lot of uh, 
truck with supernatural things, which is what my story is about. And most of my stories are. But um, so this again is a mix of um, history and fiction. Uh, and, and like I said in the beginning, it's taking the B road to tell the story of the Armada, which is where I'm going to get to eventually. <laughs> so that's what I'm. That's, that's where I am at the moment. Somewhere on the South Downs, Devil's Dyke, I think I'm. I am at the moment. <laughs> the Devil's Dyke, somewhere, somewhere north of Brighton. <laughs> of course, where else would you be? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, you go to all sorts of places. I think you have a sort of virtual passport as a writer to go to all these different places. And of course, no one can stop you. Um, you know, having spent a year or two in, in, in the far northeast end of the Great Wall, um, I'm back in England. Yeah, for a little while anyway. For a little while anyway, <laughs> yeah. Who knows what happens after that? Yeah. <laughs> and then do you have any ideas of what you're going to do after that? No, not really. I, I'm, I'm, this, this project's looking like it's going to be quite a long one, so I'm not really projecting beyond that at the moment. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what might come after that. I honestly don't. It, it, this might be the last book. I don't know. Um, or must last one for a while. I, you know, I think promoting four books and then promoting a fifth. I, I don't know how it will work. But um, yeah, I'm still enjoying writing. Um, so I'll see, I'll see what I'll see. Well, I don't think I have any more questions for you unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. Um, no, I don't think so. I think we've had a good run. It's um, coming up for an hour, isn't it? Or just I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, so thank you very much for hosting the event, Donna. You're welcome. Good to have a, a, a chat with you. Um, Always. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get around to doing the other two books in due course and no see doubt, what we'll make yeah. of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of got into these, <laughs> these blog tours, actually. I've, I've actually got two on at the moment, one for that first novel and one for this one, The Old Dragon's Head. Um, but the first, that, the one for the... Genes of Isis is an American one, um, which I kind of think is more the audience that's suitable for that kind of almost like mythological fantasy because it's got sort of biblical references in it and the flood and fall of angels, which I don't know, it's been written about quite a lot anyway, um, the Nephilim and things. But again, I, I take the B road. Yeah. <laughs> different stories to everybody else. Well, when it's in a way you've got to, you know, because the market is so so swollen, uh, so thick with stories that you've got to come up with something different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So would you like to tell everyone where they can get your books from and where they can find out more about you or contact you if they'd like to? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I have a website, justinnewland.com. 
uh, where you can buy the books um, and see my latest events, reviews, blogs. Although I don't write that many blogs, but um, I, I'm quite active on Facebook um, with sort of thoughts for the day and things. Um, but they can buy the books uh, online and there's actually a little um, uh, option in the website, my website, to put in a dedication. So I can write the dedication and send it to the people. Uh, alternatively, there's always the main outlets, Waterstones, Smiths, uh, or any independent bookshop can order it, Amazon. Um, in fact, I, I did a trawl of um, online bookshops where my books appear and it, it's just all worldwide although they don't stock the book uh, because it's on some catalogue presumably the the gardeners or the Bertrams catalogue um, it, it appears everywhere in South Africa in China Australia India South America you know Canada everywhere um, so yes yeah, it's, it's generally available yeah well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Donna. You take care of yourself and Trixie and, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> lovely to talk to you. Um, you too. And thank you for having me on your, your channel. You almost got a channel now, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Donna's channel. Yeah, go for <laughs> yeah. it.